being the case, then I would ask uh, you go for scripture for meditation out of Genesis 3, and that would be page 5. Oh, one more thing. There's a note here. Anybody know where this came from? A note? I have an opinion about that one, George, but that's for a later time. Dear ones at TBC, thank you so much for your prayers and support through Mercy's brain surgeries. The many gifts helped us with our hotel stays, gas, costs, and many, many meals out. We are deeply grateful for the practical help you gave with dog care, child care, and meals as well. Christian community is a great gift from our Lord. Thank you for giving to us. Love the Armstrong family. Okay.
Would you stand with us as we begin our morning worship and prayer? Dale, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer. You take your Trinity this morning and turn to number 167, 167 in the red.
give it name this one. Good deal, I guess. Nope. It's all you. Three zero eight in the red.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You'll find that on page 1499 on your pew Bible. When you arrive to that, please stand with us. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. Father in heaven, we pray that you would add your blessing to this reading of the scripture, that hearts would be open, splayed wide open, Lord, and receptive to your word, that one perhaps would be drawn today to you, to the cross, to understand that without you in their lives, their lives are fruitless. Be with us now, Lord, in the name of Christ we ask. Amen. You take your red hymnal once again and turn to 532, 532.
Our text today is Matthew chapter 4. Last week we discovered that Christ stands among his churches as sure as he stood among the crowd of spectators at John's baptism. Then as now he was, he is the Son of God, confirmed by none other than God the Father's own declaration from heaven, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Matthew 3, verse 17. And as confirmation, God sent his own Holy Spirit upon Jesus to animate him and direct his every thought, word, and deed. Christ was truly a man filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he received the Spirit without measure, that is to say, a full-blown endowment of the Spirit of God in his life. As we come to today's study, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to study it. Some of our people are gone today. Some are ill and sick and others are uh, dealing with uh, issues at home. And we pray your blessing on each family. And Lord, we know that we live in a sinful world. And so things are going to go awry not necessarily because of our fault or anything of that nature, just because we live in a world where the devil is at work. And what does he do? Creates mayhem and disorder and heartache and all of the things that wicked uh, person can do. He does it. And we ask, Lord, that you will defeat him today. And may the word of God find a place in our hearts. Don't allow the evil one to snatch away the good seed of your word lord may it take root in our hearts and grow into a wonderful uh, life-giving fruit uh, for the lord jesus christ in whose name we pray amen today's study takes us to the exact time following jesus baptism in which he identified with sinners and put to the test the Father's affirmation that Jesus was the Son of God. Matthew writes, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Mark puts it this way, At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Mark 1, verse 12. So get it. He came, he was baptized by the baptizer, and immediately God whisked him away out into the desert, where for 40 days he would exist pray, fight, wrestle with the evil one and all that the wicked devil can do. So if we were to ask, when is the then? Mark would respond by telling us that it was at once. His words, not mine. At once. 
that is after the Spirit had descended upon Jesus in his baptism at once, he was whisked away by the Spirit into the remotest regions of the desert where only the wild animals live. There, deprived of human contact, he was alone with his thoughts and alone with the one Matthew calls the tempter. Verse 3 of our text. So that is our study for today. Christ and the tempter. Why would the Spirit of God lead Jesus into an isolated, lonely wilderness and place him in what can only be called a most precarious position with regard to his soul? I pointed out that Jesus knew full well who he was. There was no ambiguity in his own mind as to his identity or his purpose for being on earth. Historians portray Christ as a confused, idealistic dreamer who didn't have a sense of the danger of his day, and therefore he got caught up unwittingly in the political intrigue of the times when they think that way, that tells me they have never read the gospel accounts. And if they have, they have not done justice to their obvious meanings. So let none of us here think that Jesus was in the dark as to his identity, his power, his mission, his destiny. He came to carry out a very carefully orchestrated plan of God the Father in which nothing was left to chance or circumstance or any other kind of fickle finger of fate. Here God leads him by his spirit into the desert for the purpose of combating the enemy of every man's soul, the devil diabolos, the accuser, the accuser. Paul says that he accuses the believer day and night before the throne of God. Can you believe that? He knows he's defeated. He knows we're secure in Christ and in God's grace but he still goes about accusing, accusing, accusing believers before God the Father. God has just announced that Jesus is his son, the son he loves, the son who pleases him, the son upon whom he has sent his own spirit of power, and I would say without Measure, that means all power from the Holy Spirit. But his son is encased in human flesh, possessing, along with his divinity, a human innocence, a nature which is subject to evil solicitations. Yes, that's making human subject to solicitation is not the same as giving in to those 
solicitations. So the question comes, could he represent man and win against the tempter himself? Would he remain holy in face of the greatest onslaught to his divinity? Could he keep from falling as Adam and Eve had done? Or would he fall into sin as they did? Would the tempter find a chink in Jesus' armor, a soft spot, a vulnerable area to shoot with his darts and bring Christ low? Would his divinity be vindicated and his sinless humanity maintained? You might say, well, who cares? I want you to try to think of Jesus as always functioning in a representative capacity, representing those people who in faith will believe in him or do believe in him and turn from their sin to him for their refuge. So if you think of Jesus in this way, then you will begin to appreciate that what he does he does for you. For his people. Here then in his temptation, he's being tempted so that he may withstand it for his people and win against the tempter for his people by establishing his power over the devil in these various attempts to bring him low. These are really awesome thoughts when you think about it. Jesus does what Israel, as the people of God, failed to do. He does what Adam, our representative head, failed to do. And that is why Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. He does for his people what Adam failed to do. What he failed to do affected the whole race. The tempter came to Adam and Eve, suggesting that they could become God. And Adam fell for that. And in so doing, he brought death to the whole human race. He failed the test. He fell and damaged the whole human race, making us all sinners like Adam. Our text brings before us Jesus as the last Adam. And symbolically as well, the people of God, or Israel, and the contest is intensified because we are not dealing now with one who is but a perfect man. We are dealing with one who claims to be the Son of God as well as being fully human. A voice from heaven 
has named him as the Father's Son. God the Father. And so for one so much more better equipped to do battle with evil, there's no paradise filled with refreshing rivers and abundant fruit trees and domestic animals. There's no Eden for Jesus. But instead, Jesus finds himself in a dry desert, barren and dusty, devoid of vegetation, a place with no water, no food, and the only animals around him are wild and ferocious. And when night descended, the cold of the clear desert air fell deep upon him, and there was no shelter from the elements, as in Eden. Adam had it good. Jesus had it bad. You know the thing about deserts, they're boiling hot during the day, and they're ice cold at night. They're in the 30s at night. That's enough to freeze. Now, would God the Father's confidence in Jesus be justified? Would Jesus prove himself divine or just a mere man, as was the first Adam? Would his 40-day ordeal do him in and leave him weak and wounded and broken as any man. This is the contest. And this is the test. The 40-day trial is significant. The Bible never throws extraneous and irrelevant material at us. You remember that Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai at the receiving of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 24, verse 18. Elijah, in fleeing from Jezebel, that wicked woman, trekked across the desert from Mount Carmel to Palestine to the mountain of God, it says in 1 Kings 19, verse 8. But most significant is the fact that Israel is the people of God wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their refusal to trust God. They came right up to the promised land, but the Bible says we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3, verse 19. Here we discover something about God, and that is that faith is very important to God. Faith is very important to God. The Bible makes it clear that we cannot please God apart from faith. Let me read it for you. It's in Hebrews 4. Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly Seek him. That's Hebrews 11, verse 6. So faith is woven in 
to the fiber of every fabric of the Christian life. Paul put it this way. We live by faith and not by sight. And that's not to say that faith in God is unreasonable. Faith is the most reasonable thing for a creature of God to do. It is when we disown God and disbelieve him that we say in effect that God is a liar or he is a lie, an illusion, and such ignorance is the willful choice of far too many people in our day. It is to ignore credible evidence to the contrary and to bury our heads in the sand. Now, as we analyze Jesus' temptation by the tempter, we see that faith played a dominant role in Jesus' victory as well. Well, what about this temptation? The tempter begins saying this, If you are the Son of God, let me just stop there a minute. If you are, do you suppose that the devil did not know that Jesus was the Son of God? Is that why he asks this question? Well, we miss the point if that's what we think. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he was confronted at times by demon-possessed people. People controlled by an evil spirit sent from Satan himself. And on a number of these occasions, when Jesus commanded the evil spirits to depart, in their leaving, they often said some very interesting things to Jesus or about Jesus. Let me give you some examples. Luke 4, verse 41, tells us that as Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons, we read, demons came out of many shouting, You are the Son of God! Hmm. That's Luke 4. And verse 34, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon an evil spirit, and he cried out on the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Wow. These are demonic creatures under the control of of Diabolos, Satan. When Jesus visited the region of the Gerasenes in the province of Galilee, I'm reading scripture, 
he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet and shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. And Jesus asked, What's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. Luke 8, verse 26. You see, the demons know who Jesus is, and they are they also know they're no match for him. They beg each time, don't do this to us. Do, leave us alone. Now, how do you suppose that these little evil spirits, let me call them that, the demons, how did they know who Jesus was? But the devil, the great tempter himself, didn't know. Well, to think that is silly. The devil's question to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, is not doubting of Jesus' deity, but rather an affirmation of it. Since you are the Son of God. Indeed, all of these temptations by Satan are directed towards Jesus' awareness of his sonship, its privileges, its responsibilities. And Satan uses this knowledge to give his temptations direction and force. He hit Christ where it hurts, just as he hits us where it hurts. Each temptation of Jesus is personal. It's related to Jesus' mission and work. The devil in each of these solicitations to evil does not urge Jesus to abandon his role or work as Messiah, but rather to perform that role independent of God the Father's counsel and the Holy Spirit's direction. In short, to do God's work in self-will and by human ingenuity. How so? Now, you can just see the devil. Now, Jesus, uh, I'm not asking you uh, not to do the Father's will. Uh, of course, you should do the Father's will. We should all do the Father's will. But, you know, you have divine powers, and you also have, you're a superhuman individual. You can do these things on your own and in your own strength. Think of the consequences of such a temptation 
had Jesus caved in. The unity he had with the Father would have been destroyed. And it is by that unity that Jesus maintained his thoughts, his words, his deeds in obedience to the Father. In fact, in John 5, verse 19, verse 30, Jesus, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And brethren, it is precisely at this point that the devil aims his temptation. He tries to get Jesus to please himself and to forget for the moment the will of God the Father. Solomon was right. Solomon was right when he said that there is nothing new under the sun. Satan through the serpent used the same ploy with the first Adam. He comes to us in the same way. You know, Christian, you can do the work of God. You can. Uh, uh, but you don't have to do it God's way. You can do it your own way. God doesn't care about the methodology. He's only interested in the results. And brethren, that lie has ruined thousands, millions of lives. Let's look a little bit at Jesus' temptation, aspects of it. Firstly, there is the test of the flesh. If you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Verse 3. Now Matthew has just informed us that Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert and that when the fast was over, he was hungry. Duh! 40 days of not eating? You'd be hungry too. And if you had not eaten for 40 days... You might be pretty desperate. But the way people of our day, to prove the possibility, they've actually tried this. People have actually read that in Scripture, and they themselves have fasted for 40 days just to see if the biblical account is scientific or not. And they have found out that it is. People can fast for 40 days and be in perfect health. The test is a duplication 
of a similar test that God's people, Israel, underwent when they were faced with hunger in the wilderness after their miraculous exodus from Egypt. You remember this. They had the audacity to say to Moses, Oh, if only we had died by the Lord's hands in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, and we ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve us, this entire assembly, to starve us to death. Exodus 16, verse 3 and 4. Wow, how quickly they had forgotten about the taskmasters of Egypt, the whips, the quota of making bricks with no straw being the same, being beaten with rods by the Egyptian taskmasters. It's a wonder God didn't strike them dead on the spot for being such ingrates, the Israelites. Instead, God sent them bread from heaven, quail from the sea, and they were sustained. Bread, meat, bread, meat. Starch, protein. Now in Deuteronomy, Moses explains what God was up to when the Israelites had no food. Let me read it for you. He humbled you, God. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Which is precisely Jesus' answer to the tempter in this first temptation, verse 4. This shows us that Jesus saw his own temptation as being similar to Israel's. Now, what's the test here? It's this. Not simply the lesson that we, as God's people, should rely upon God for food, but rather to teach us to realize that even in times of plenty, we are not sustained by the food itself, whether ordinary food or miracle food, but by the powerful word of God which produces the food. In short, we're sustained by God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receive the blessing of God. Oh, Hebrews 6, verse 6. And Matthew puts it this way. He says, God causes his son, S-U-N, his son, it's an interesting assertion, God causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, verse 45. So in short, it is because God sustains his creation and not because you have food on today's table that you survive. Without his impartial blessings, no one would survive. He feeds the wicked. He feeds the righteous. He feeds us both. That's impartial. The Bible says of Christ in his creative role, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It consists. Colossians 1, verse 17. So here then is the point. The provision is never to be viewed in place of the provider. In this case, food from God. Israel murmured at God for lack of food, thereby showing their lack of faith in God to sustain them. I mean, was it even reasonable that God had brought his people through the Red Sea in Egypt, out in the Exodus, only to starve them to death in the wilderness? That doesn't even make sense. Instead of griping, instead of complaining, Instead of charging God with wicked intent, they should have been on their knees thanking God and praising Him for His assistance by faith. That said, now Jesus, in a similar dilemma, he is in the desert. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. He is the Son of God. He has the power to command stones to become bread. And it would have happened as surely as he commanded the paralytic to take up his bed and walk, which the man did. For the feeding of the 5,000 from a little bit of fish which happened, and the 4,000 at a later gathering of the people, and it happened. The temptation here is to trust in things themselves as they are considered independent of God. Says the tempter, Jesus, I, I know you're hungry, I mean, you haven't eaten for a long, long time. You are God, so just make yourself some bread from these stones. In short, he was saying to Jesus, satisfy your hunger on your own without relying upon God the Father to care for you.
But without God's blessings, the things of life lose their true value and their ultimate good. God must come before food as the provider comes before the provision. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. For Jesus, it was God first, God before opportunity, God before ministry, God before self He goes on, how pitifully self-consumed we are at times that Satan suggested to us to make our own food from stones. If we could have done it, we would have in a heartbeat. We would not have given a second thought to how satisfying our hunger independent of faith in God was dishonoring to God. Or how to obey Satan placed us at odds with God and caused us to side with his enemy and our enemy. He goes on, when it comes to the flesh, this is a good statement. When it comes to the flesh, there is little we will not do to arrange our own comfort, whether God is in it or That's scary, but true. In this we fail, whereas Jesus won. Did God give Jesus some manna or food when he refused to make stones into bread? No. Was he still hungry? Yes. Did he then die in the desert? No. Why not? Verse 11. Angels came and attended him. You see, brethren, there are many ways for God to keep his promises to us, but you have to believe and stop second-guessing God. What about the second temptation? Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle. And he says, If you are the Son of God, that is, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He, God the Father, will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, 
so that you will not so much as strike your foot against the stone. And that's a quote from Psalm 91. So you see what's going on here. Jesus, having used Scripture, the Word of God, to thwart Satan's first temptation, the devil, pretty sharp, he starts quoting Scripture to add credibility to his second temptation. It is as though he has reason. Ooh, I see that Jesus is a man well acquainted with the Bible. So this time I will use a little Bible to convince him to do what I want. May I say that devils and angels and men all live by the word of God. What the word says. Whether they like it or not. Our enemy knows how to use the Bible to his advantage, but he's still an enemy of the gospel. Once again, there is a parallel Israel's temptation, where again they, may I say we, also failed. Moses' counsel is given in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. It says, do not test the Lord your God. That is, don't put God to the test. As you did at Massah. And Jesus' defense is in our text, verse 7. Okay, what happened at Massah? The Israelites were again in the desert, and this time the complaint was not about no food, but about no water. Not only did they accuse Moses of bringing them into the desert to die of thirst, but they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Where's God? Why are we going through all this? Where are you, God? Are we your people or not? They were calling on God to prove himself to them, as though his sustaining grace had not already... <laughs> accompanied them among, along on this journey. Moses struck the rock and water came forth. Massah is the Hebrew word for testing. They tested God. Now Jesus is confronted with the same kind of test to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple would have taken, would have been rather, to provoke a crisis, hence to test the word of God, specifically Psalm 91, in which God promised his son his watch care. This would be an attempt to force God to act, in which the son would be dictating to the father who sent him, the servant in control of the master, huh, that's all messed up, 
God would be forced to prove his reliability. But we're not to test God like that. His word is true whether you believe it or not. And the devil just shows the kind of person he is. Now we'll just put God to a little bit of a test here. And it'll convince this Jesus person that God the Father isn't worth worship. This is like the infidel saying to us, and I've had this happen, you may have too, if God is real, then let him strike me dead on the spot. George is smiling. Have you had people say that to you? No, I have had that a number of times. If God is real, then let him strike me dead on the spot. God would never obey such a wish. For then God would be at the whim of his creation, albeit a foolish and stupid man. You do not dictate to God. God dictates to you. You do not lay down the condition upon which you will grace God with belief and obedience. He lays down the conditions which, if you obey, guess what? You live. But if you disobey, you die. Jesus' relationship with God the Father is to be a pattern of our own. His relationship was one of trust, and trust needs no test. It was a relationship of obedience, and obedience does not provoke God. So what is your reaction when heartache or trial comes into your life? Do you question God's love? Do you think, well, if you loved me, you would do such and such? You're testing God's love, and you're asking him to prove it by a course of conduct which you have mapped out for him to do. There's no faith in that. No trust. And you, the sinner, are disobedient and faithless with regard to Christ the Lord. So we don't put God to the test, as the devil was suggesting. There's yet a third temptation, verse 8. Again, it says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down 
and worship moi. You will worship me. Ah, now we've got to the crux of the whole temptation. Make no mistake about it, the devil is said to be the God of this age, God with a little g. He's the God of the here and now, as opposed to eternal's future. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The Apostle John wrote, We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that. Satan's specific temptation seems to fit into Jesus' messianic destiny, namely that God had promised him that he would rule over all the nations and in time establish grace among men. Grace and peace. So the temptation becomes this. Satan agrees to step aside and stop resisting the coming kingdom of God and to allow the Prince of Peace to bring in the kingdom he wants so long as Jesus will worship him and acknowledge Satan's right to rule the nations and to dispense with them as he sees fit. This was an attempt to get Jesus to bypass God the Father's plan of the cross and to take another route to world dominion. And it's true that under the benevolent dictatorship of Christ, with no resistance by Satan, some of the symptoms of disharmony and trouble would have been removed from our world, but not their cause of the disharmony and trouble, namely sin, would not have been removed. And the consequences of sin, namely death and hell, would not have been vanquished for the nations. So Jesus repudiated the offer once again, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, this time verse 13. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, serve only him. Oh, something the devil is really having trouble with. Has always had trouble with. In short, Jesus chose God's way of the cross rather than Satan's shortcut. Does the end justify the means? I mean, does it really make any difference that Christ gains world domination as the enthroned king by way of the cross instead of by way of worshiping Satan? Think about it. Satan would say, no, it's, it's the same thing. 
And indeed, many today carry very little about methods. I think of the business world. A man can be immoral, a liar, deceptive, represent things falsely, but if the profit line of the company is larger as a result, who cares? Certainly not the company, which is out to make money, right? If a president can put a chicken in every voter's pot, a second car in everyone's garage, who cares that he sleeps with every skirt that he can find and is involved in scandal after scandal after scandal in his dealing with others? Who cares? God holds you and I responsible not only for getting the work done, his work, but for how we did it. How we did it. The shortcuts of wicked scheming, capitulation to the methods of godless marketers, Abandonment of God's truth to please the crowds never has the sanction of God upon them, but instead his curse. Hebrews 4.15 says of Jesus, We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then, Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I would say to you today, whatever your need is, Christ has been there. He has experienced it. Our text says that he was hungry. It says he was tempted by the devil. Mark tells us that the testing lasted 40 days. So it was intense. It was plausible. It was convincing. It was within his powers. It was something he could have chosen to do. God didn't keep him from the test. And it was spiritually exhausting and mentally taxing. Verse 11 says, angels of God had to attend to him afterwards. He was spent. God won out over these evil solicitations and he did it for you and he did it for me he succeeded where Israel the people of God failed now if he can take on the devil and win there is no problem in your life too big for him to tackle. He calls on you today, he calls on me today to trust him. Trust him now, trust him completely. His invite is this, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. You know, Paul says that the devil roars about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Understanding his time is short. Doomsday is written on the calendar. God has a spot for the devil already picked out. You can read about it in Revelation 22, and it isn't a pleasant spot. But you would think that he is the master designer and ruler of the universe. He's caught up by his own pride. He will perish in his sin. Don't follow this guy. He's going to make it look like sin is fun. It's like play. But the consequences, the consequences are horrific. You don't want to go there. How do you avoid it? Come to Christ. Christ is the only one that has defeated the evil one. And he's got it all mapped out, and you can follow it in Scripture, what's going to happen to the devil. It's just that the devil is delusional. He thinks he's going to win. That's part of the pride, which is his major sin. You'll find it in Ezekiel 37. You can read about his pride. Where he says, I will be like the most high. I'm going to be God. And his God complex is going to take him right to hell. There's only one God. And that's the God of the scriptures. The God who is Jesus' Father. And our Father. By God's grace. Trust Christ. Don't let the world's wickedness seep into your life so that you begin to lose heart. The end is near, I believe it. And if it isn't, even if it isn't, God's going to see us that believe to the end. We're going to make it all the way. Preserved and saved. Father, thank you for your sustaining grace. Help us to see it and to believe it. Very tough in this world. Boy, it's so wicked, but the pleasures of sin, 
They're fun. You know, it's fun to be sinful. And there's so many things that we could do to please ourselves. But Lord, in the end, the tragedy of disobedience to God has no reprieve. None. We will spend eternity in hell if we don't come to Christ the Savior. Dear Savior, we thank you directly that you paid the price for our sin at Calvary. You didn't lift up a rug and scoop our sin out of sight, thus thinking out of sight and it doesn't exist. No, it exists unless we come to the cross with the sin. Why the cross? Because in the cross, Jesus pays our indebtedness. He doesn't sweep anything under the carpet. He deals with every sin in our lives. And his blood, his atoning grace, is so powerful that he has the power to cover every sin that was ever committed by his people. And that is what you did for us who believe. Bless these truths to our heart. Save whom you will today. Grant faith where it's not there. And grant repentance where it's not there. For the glory of God. We pray these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's 654 in Trinity. We don't know this tune. Give us just a second. It's the same tune, but I just had a different key.
We have a lot of people uh, gone today, so I'm going to move the communion service to next week, so we will dismiss it. We are dismissed.